Well, welcome everybody. We are grateful to have you worshiping with us at Wilshire. Welcome to everybody who's uh, with us online. We are grateful to have you with us too. And uh, I'm very excited today because we have special guests with us. Uh, the Bolderevs have been in our prayer list for a long, long time. Uh, Jan, Nadia, Masha, and Lisa. I think I said your names right, I, I, I hope. Um, uh, we have been helping them, and many here in the congregation have known about their work with orphans. We've known about the fact that they've had to leave Russia and are now currently, I guess as long as the draft is instituted there, uh, are, are currently living as refugees in this country. They are with us today, and I hope that after the worship service, you guys will have a chance to meet them. Um, I, I hate to ask you to do this, so I won't ask them to raise their hands, but if you see where Yodi is sitting, the Volderefs are sitting right in front of her. <laughs> so, you know, how embarrassing was that? Not too bad. <laughs> anyway, we're, I'm just thrilled to have them with us. They're in town for this ministry that goes on at Oklahoma Christian, the Global Reunion, which is a time of respite and healing for missionaries all around the world. It's really a wonderful ministry. Um, we've been talking about the presence of God, Jesus' promise, I will be with you. Jesus came to make that promise come true. Ultimately, we're all looking forward to the day when God's righteousness will cover all of creation like the ocean covers the sea, like water covers the sea. We know that day's coming, perfect presence of God. But Jesus came to give us the presence of God before even that day comes. And we've been looking at specific scriptural promises that allude to that fact, the ways in which God or Jesus say, I will be present with you, I will be with you. Today I want to remind you of a story in the Old Testament which is the opposite of that. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, the worker of the field, Abel tends flocks. They both bring sacrifices to God, Genesis 4 says. And God looks with favor on the sacrifice of Abel anyway. He doesn't on that which Cain gives. And Abel becomes an object of hatred in the mind of Cain. We don't know how long that hatred festered. Genesis gives us a very compressed story. But Cain couldn't stand Abel, that he was receiving a blessing that Cain was not. And Genesis 4 records the first murder in the Bible. And Cain, while Abel and he are alone and no one to see, rises up and kills Abel and thinks that his crime is unseen, unwitnessed. The blood of Abel seeps into the ground. 
And God comes to Cain again, having already warned him. And he asks this question, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain was blessed. Cain was blessed to live near God. Even though his parents had been cast out of the Garden of Eden, he was blessed to be able to converse with God, to have that level of the presence of God in his life. And there's a problem with the presence of God. I want the blessings of God. I want God to smile at me, to make my crops grow, to make my animals healthy, to make my checks not bounce, and my creditors be kind. I want God to bless me. But I don't like it when he asks me questions. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? This picture that we have of Cain in that moment is your picture and my picture. I want God. I don't, I don't even want just the things that he gives me. In my best moments, I want to be righteous like God. I want to be better. But at the same time, it's hard to be close to God. Because God asks us questions. Sometimes about the hardest things in our lives. The conversation continues like this in Genesis 4. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The blood of Abel that you think is hidden and absorbed by that dirt has a voice. Adam and Eve can't hear it. There are no human witnesses, but I can't ignore it, God says. It demands something happen. The blood cries out, Cain is guilty. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Cain realizes too late what it is that he just lost. He had a blessing to be in the presence of God. And in rage and in anger, he had given it up. He had forfeited it. God says, I will protect you. Here's a way that I will keep you safe. But yes, you have to leave. You have to leave. 
I tell you that story so that you understand how deeply embedded in our biblical story is this concept of the precious presence of God. It's there from the beginning to the end. All the way through. That the most important thing in your life, the most important measuring rod for your well-being and your whether you succeed or fail as a human being, the most important thing is whether or not you are able to be in the presence of God. The most important thing. I know a lot of other things feel important right now. Money feels important. Status feels important. People who treat you like garbage, they feel very important. They matter some. But the thing that ultimately matters for you is how much you are able to be in the presence of God. And so today I want to focus on one of the sets of promises we have in Scripture about a place you can go, a people you can be with, and by being with them intentionally you are in the presence of God. I'm talking about God's church. Multiple promises that by doing what you just did, by showing up here today, with intention to serve Jesus, you have come into the presence of God. You have come into the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it doesn't even matter how big your church is. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, for when two or three gather in my name, I'm there. I am there with them. Jesus comes to join us when we come together as Christ's church. That's just the way that it is. When you are together with other Christians intentionally as Christians, as followers of Christ, you have come into the presence of Jesus. And we know that because the Bible tells us so, right? We know that that's true. But we also, I think, have felt it, those of us who have been coming into the presence of other Christians, for a long time. We've felt it. We may not recognize it for what it is, but we have realized something is different when you are with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not like hooking up with your World of Warcraft league. This is not like going bowling with the guys. This is not... It's different when you come together with your brother. You feel that difference when you come together with your fellow followers of Christ. You've been feeling it as long as you've been a Christian. Because Jesus Christ says, I'm there. When you are together, something heavenly is happening on earth whenever you are together with your brothers and sisters. You've drawn God's realm, heaven, into the world whenever you meet up with your brothers and sisters. 
You've come into the presence of God. Matthew 18 makes that promise. I think 1 Corinthians 3 makes a similar promise. Paul is trying to explain in chapter 3 why Christian unity matters so much. Why it matters so much that we be held together as Brother Noblin prayed. And he says this in verse 16, chapter 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in the middle of you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I'm glad that the NIV translated it in a way that makes it clear what's being expressed. You, church, are the temple of God. When Christians come together as the church, we are God's temple. There was still a temple functioning, a building functioning in Jerusalem with the priests of the Old Covenant still offering sacrifice when Paul wrote these words. Paul was raised his whole life as a believing Jew, believing in those sacrifices. So I want you to understand the profundity of what he just said. He said, I know that building is still there. What I'm telling you is that building is not the temple of God anymore. God doesn't want to have his temple be limited to one place. This is a worldwide mission so that people from every nation can come to follow Christ and therefore his temple must exist everywhere. And so everywhere you come together as Christians with other Christians as the church, my temple is there a piece of heaven where God dwells, inserted into this world, the presence of God. We take church for granted. I understand it. I've been doing church a long time. My experience of church, like a lot of you, predates my memories. I don't remember the first time I went to church. I just remember, oh, we're at church again. I mean, you know, it, and for a lot of you that were raised in the church, that's it. And so it's easy to take that as routine. But if you come to church, if you come to be with God's people, I don't care if you're meeting in a house in a storefront, in a purpose-built bill, I don't care where that is. If you come to meet with God's people, you are standing in a holy place, in the presence of God. It's an astonishing, astonishing fact. This is holy what we do every Sunday. It is sacred what we do. You are sacred. Every Sunday, 
you are a piece of the building. A brick in the wall. A candlestick lighting the room. A table of showbread. An altar of incense. That's you. You are God's temple. Third place I want to focus on that makes this promise. There are many promises on this topic, but I just want to focus on one more. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This is what Bruce read for us this morning. Beautifully, I might add. Oh boy, I love Bruce's voice. I love it when you read. love it even more when you sing, brother. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged, no further word be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the uh, the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. In those short little verses, those few verses, basically the writer of Hebrews has reminded us of details from chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Exodus. The Israelites, after slogging through the wilderness, they come to the mountain where God had met with Moses earlier in the burning bush, and God comes down to meet them. What could be better than being in the presence of God? The God who just set you free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. What could be more exciting? And yet the text is very clear what the Hebrew writer pulls out. That as exciting as it was, and as wonderful as it was, And as awesome as it was, it was terrifying. Jesus, uh, God, in that moment, pronounces his Ten Commandments. And the next thing that we hear the Israelites say in chapter 20 is, please don't let that voice talk anymore. Please don't let that voice talk to us anymore. Moses, you go up and talk to that God. That voice is terrifying. It's wonderful and awful. That's true of God. If you don't ever recognize the terror of God ever, you aren't paying attention to who God is. The terror of God is not because God is mean. The terror of God is not because God is hateful. We have hateful beings and hateful institutions around us. That's not God. No, the terror of God is that God is perfect. And when I come into the presence of God, as I've done by putting myself in this 
church today, when I come into the presence of God, if I open my eyes just a little bit, I find this other light shining on me, the light that shows what's wrong with me, the light that asks me questions and wants me to be different. It's wonderful to draw near to the source of everything good, all light, all life, all blessings coming from this one source. It's wonderful to draw near, and it's also terrifying. The more we recognize the perfect goodness of God, the more terrifying it is to be with him. But the Hebrew writer says that was the experience of the first covenant, terror mixed with wonder. What's your experience? He says, our experience is different as Christians. He says, you, verse 22, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to get to that last phrase in a minute, but, but just realize what he just cataloged. Now, it is perfectly possible to come to church and think about lunch the whole hour. I get it. I understand. I'm afraid I've actually done that sometimes. It's perfectly possible not to lift your eyes up when you're in this holy place. But the writer of Hebrews says, don't you understand? And these were people who were meeting in little houses. You know, they were in fear of persecution. They were people that the Hebrew writer is first addressing this to. They were hiding often. He says, when you meet together, a little group of 20 of you, 10 of you, you remind each other about Jesus Christ, and you take the Lord's Supper, you praise God, you read Scripture. When you do that, you were like thousands and thousands of angels are there. All the other Christians in the whole world are there. Christians who've passed away, saints made perfect, Christians who've passed away are there. And best of all, God and Jesus are both there. When we do this holy thing of coming together in worship. And he says, you've come to a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood poured into the ground. Cain thought that was the end and no one would call him to account. No one could hear the blood of Abel. No human could, but God heard it and could not ignore it. Cain is guilty. Cain must be punished. That's what the blood of, Abel's, uh, blood of Abel was saying. Cain is guilty. Cain must be punished.
How come you're not scared to be sitting where you're sitting right now? How come you're not more afraid? I understand some preachers, their stock in trade is to scare you into being good. I think that's a short-term strategy for a preacher, honestly. I think God's strategy is to bless you into being good. And here's why you're not more afraid. God's not any less scary than he ever was. God's not any less perfect than he ever was. God's not any less just than he ever was. The difference is the blood that's talking about you is different than the blood of Abel. Because the blood that's talking about you to God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And right now in your heart, if you lift your eyes up at all, you realize you're in the presence of God, there are voices in your head that are saying the same things as the blood of Abel, unworthy, guilty, deserves to be punished. And the writer of Hebrews says this, and he means this. The blood of Jesus Christ says, washed and made clean. You and I are washed and made clean. It's an amazing thing to have the privilege to come together as you and I are doing right now. It's an amazing thing that all around the world Christians are doing this. All day long today as the sun marches across their skies, Christians are meeting. It's an amazing thing that in all of those places, God is there. And God is giving a blessing. It's possible, not because Christians are somehow better people. Often we aren't. It's because we have a better blood that speaks a better word than the word, the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your amazing blessings. We thank you so much for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us and makes us worthy to be in your presence. And God, we thank you for our fellowship, for our church, for our congregation. We thank you that you come to be here with us, that you lift us up into the heavenly realm as we are here. God, help us to open our hearts and eyes to that and to really recognize what it is we're experiencing in the joy we have in each other's presence, when our hearts are pricked to do better, when we are moved to, to imitate, at least in some small way, your righteousness, when we're moved to reform those things that are wrong in our hearts, to realize that's real, that's you, that's your presence driving us forward and lifting us up. God, help us, help us to be your temple here on earth. These things we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. If you need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to do so. If you need prayers, or if today is the day that you need to be baptized, why don't you come forward, tell us what we can do for you as we stand there and let in song.